You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, I don't know about you, man, but I have been watching the NFL playoffs. You probably haven't caught as, as much as I have, but this has been one of the best NFL playoffs I've, I've ever seen. Every game comes down to the line. Almost every game seems like it's up to the quarterback to uh to, to get the win. It has been awesome. I, I was hoping that uh, the San Francisco 49ers won last weekend. My, my dear friend from high school, Kyle Shanahan, is the coach there. So I was a little hurt about that. But I, other than that, man, it was uh, very exciting to watch. Yeah, it's, it's been incredible. Unfortunately, I've been uh, getting some uh, reprieve from my team, both at the church and the campaign on Sunday. So, at, so I've been able to see uh, a few of the games. And these have been incredible incredible games i wish i had known that you were high school friends with kyle shanahan i would have rooted in the other direction maybe it would have uh, helped somewhere yeah that might have pulled pulled us across the finish since it was so <laughs> close man you, you you never know uh hey guys as always man we want to shout out our sponsor the fetzer institute such a great partner we want to thank them for supporting us in what we do and how we do it man we got so much to get to that i'm gonna skip past some of the pleasantries so gl- grab your bible get your mind right and prepare to think not like a republican not like a democrat but like a christian now, those of you who've been listening to us for a while know that on this podcast, we have encouraged our listeners to get vaccinated. Both me and Chris are fully vaccinated and believe that the evidence strongly points toward the idea that vaccinations, although not 100 percent guaranteed to prevent uh, one from catching COVID, do seriously blunt the impacts when it comes to hospitalizations and death. Unvaccinated people are 20 times more likely to die of COVID. Those are facts. This is not a government conspiracy. This is not some devious corporation trying to force you to get the jab and become a zombie. You need to get vaccinated for your good and others. Now, listen to the experts. We are not medical experts or anything like that. So, uh, of course, listen to your healthcare providers. Uh, But as always, we've done our best to think through the issue, to not simply take an ideological side and run with it wherever it may lead may lead us. Uh, We have tried to examine the facts, consider all the factors. Right. And review the best information. And and this is just really where we landed. Now, our position on vaccinations uh, is somewhat at odds with something that's going on in the country right above ours. Uh, with the freedom convoys uh, that made a big splash in Canada and are still going on as we speak. Uh, we have our differences, but uh, uh, but I hope, at least on my end, it doesn't uh, mean that we can't acknowledge their right to protest. Now, just for a little background for, uh, for those that, who haven't heard about it, last week, a convoy about of about 2,700 big rigs took a week-long drive across Canada to protest the country's COVID measures. Uh, one of the new measures would require unvaccinated Canadian truckers 
crossing the U.S.-Canada border to quarantine for 14 days once they got home and a rapid test would not be an option. They would have to quarantine. It seems like that's the kind of measure that is really aimed at making unvaccinated status burdensome so that it's not worth your time and not worth your money. It's a way to compel you to get vaccinated without a mandate. The truckers uh, in this uh, effort gained a lot of support as they drove through Canada. Groups gathered on the side of the highway, groups gathered on overpasses, cheering them on. And they even raised, Chris, $9 million through GoFundMe from 90,000 donors. Now, there was an issue with GoFundMe where they weren't giving them all their money that they had raised. I don't know if they figured that out or not, but they raised $9 million. That's incredible. So they're now outside of the parliament building in Canada in 13 degree weather, trying to make their point clear. Uh, They are calling for an end to the COVID measures and said they're not trying to negotiate. They want that to end. Now, interestingly enough, while they're calling for this, and not every trucker in Canada is supporting this, but while they're calling for this, 90% of the truckers in Canada are vaccinated. Uh, So that's interesting. The convoy has... Uh, been peaceful up to this point, uh, just as its organizers have insisted that all participants remain. They want it to remain a peaceful protest. They they think it makes their message stronger. Uh, they've also been cooperative with police, although about 100 rigs blockaded a main street running past the Canadian Parliament building as they parked. Uh, as we've noted in our book, Compassion and Conviction, you need to read it if you have not. Protest is the definition of protest that we use is publicly registering disapproval uh, of some action or set of circumstances for the purpose of moving those with power to act. And we know that we saw a lot of protests over the last two years and the AND campaign even had some uh, demonstrations of our own. But one thing that I have noticed, Chris, is that we love the protests that match our opinions, but we very quickly get upset and fearful When it comes to protests that challenge our beliefs, you see the same people that hated everything about the Black Lives Matter protests love the Freedom Convoy, are retweeting the Freedom Convoy and talking about how great it is, most likely because it's against their ideological opposition. We tend to apply a higher level of scrutiny to protests that come from people we disagree with while we candy coat and give the benefit of the doubt to movements we sympathize with. I remember, Chris, and you may have seen this uh, during one of the Black Lives Matter protests. There was this CNN reporter who was talking about how peaceful the protests had been uh, while in the background. It was complete chaos. And there was actually a, a building that was burning down right behind him. But he was characterizing all this stuff, as you could see. A completely different scene going on right behind him. I I think he had a narrative he wanted to run with that just wasn't supported or corroborated by uh, the visual that was right behind him. And in another very interesting, interesting example, uh, and this was reported by uh, Politico, for months, we know that public health experts were urging Americans to take every precaution to stop the spread of COVID, and rightfully so. They were telling people initially to stay at home, to steer clear of friends, to steer clear of, of extended family, and absolutely avoid large gatherings, right? We all remember that time, and I understand most of that. It made sense at the time. However, 
You may recall that when it came to causes that some of the experts supported, their opinions changed. For example, you had Jennifer Nuzzo, who was a John Hopkins epidemiologist, who tweeted, in this moment, the public health risks of not protesting to demand an end to systemic racism greatly exceed the harms of the virus. That's an interesting judgment call. I wonder how she came to weighing those two uh, threats. Now, the question that we have to ask, I think, is would she have said the same thing about a protest that she didn't support? And as Christians, we know that we have to always be deliberate about not being partial. We should always strive to be impartial. How can we make sure that we're treating protests that we may disagree with in an impartial manner? Have we done that even in our views and our narratives about them? Now, here's some more information about what's going on in Canada. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who I'm not a huge fan of, his response has been, in my opinion, less than upstanding. In what seems like a premature move, he actually left his home and kind of hid away at some undisclosed location as this uh, as this uh, group of truckers was coming into uh, where he was at. Instead of addressing protesters like a strong yet concerned leader and listening to their issues, it seems like he's done all he can to dismiss them. He said that their views are unacceptable. He said that they are attacking the truth and so on. And as usual on issues like this coming from the right, the mainstream media in Canada and in the U.S. have once again let their biases uh, show uh, in this circumstance. First, many folks barely even covered it as it had been going on for almost a week. Initially, it got very little coverage Uh, and they were quick to point out like the one truck with a Confederate flag and then kind of make a narrative out of that to kind of label everybody else who was involved. One cartoonist, one uh, fairly well-known cartoonist, labeled the whole movement fascist. There was a, a cartoon of, tr- of the trucks, and each one of the trucks had fascism on it, which going against a mandate being fascist is kind of weird. I, I don't know how that works and makes it fascist, but that's what he said. OK, and then you have some folks that are close to Trudeau, some folks close to the administration who have called it separatist and racist. And although I may not agree kind of with the root of what's going on or why they may have initially done this, I just haven't seen that to be true. Now, I'm not in Canada. There may be something that pops up that's that, you know, that that points to that. I just haven't seen it. And, and in one instance, there was a brother who was saying he was a white supremacist and all this other stuff to mock to mock the the media and they took it and thought it was real. And so it's just been a crazy, uh, a crazy situation going back and forth and how the media has kind of handled this. But it seems again, like the administration is spending more time trying to smear the freedom convoys rather than addressing their concerns head on. Uh, This doesn't mean that they have to concede or agree and give them everything they want, but I do think there's a better approach. Trudeau has recently come under a lot of scrutiny for what people are saying is running away. Um, and that's how some people have put it. He's trying to do some damage control. I think he tweeted this morning that he is not afraid or intimidated of the folks in the convoy. And he, you know, he's he's trying to uh, change the, the the narrative behind what people are seeing. But it's an interesting back and forth. Chris, what do you what, what's your thoughts just in general on this issue? And what do you have to say about our partiality when it comes to how we view certain protests? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, first off, this is taking place in Canada, um, but it has been talked about a lot in U.S. media outlets and, and has some implication and application. And I think it, it's, you know, it's troubling to me. This, and this is not the first time that we've seen it. When you begin to sort of have this thing in public discourse where you want to diminish the rights of people to protest. Obviously, you never want to see a protest turn violent. And, you know, we did see that happen on January 6th. But protests happen in the United States. Protests happen in Canada. Protests happen all over the world uh, in democratic societies all the time that do not turn violent. And protest is a robust uh, and important sort of component of true democracy. The ability of a group of people uh, to express their disagreement and concern with things that are happening in the society and things that are happening in the government, uh, that's just a critical part of how we have to do democracy. Uh, and as, as you pointed out, 90% of the truckers in Canada are already vaccinated and and probably won't uh, be impacted by this rule. Many of them probably uh, don't have that much issue with it. We even see in Canada a much higher rate of sort of approval overall of sort of the COVID protection ordinances or whatever you want to call it. Like this, the, the, I don't, I don't want to call it a shutdown because they're not completely shut down. Uh, but many more Canadians are supportive of those sort of COVID measures. But I point that out to say that the minority, the folks who are not in the sort of mainstream of public thought are the ones who are, who most need to be protected in terms of their freedom and ability to protest. You know, when you think about protest turning violent, it takes me to the mindset of what causes that group that does not feel like their opinions and their values can find any voice through legitimate means, what causes them to act out? And I think it is that place of hopelessness where it gets to the point where it feels like there is no way for me to uh, express my opinion. There is no way for me to uh, make my voice heard. Uh, and the more we add that kind of pressure, I think the the more we create an environment uh, where people are more prone to act out in ways that none of us want to see. Protest is a legitimate way to participate in democracy. And it is usually going to come from the minority group that is not controlling the other levers of power. That's what that's what protest is. And I think it just needs to be uh, protected uh, in democratic societies. Yeah, I agree. And and, and to be fair to, to Trudeau, uh, even though he's not my favorite politician, um, it's hard to find a balance on the mandates and what not to mandate and wanting everybody to get vaccinated. That's not an easy job. Governing is not easy. And I always want to be open about that. But to your point, how should we treat people who protest? And I think we should treat them in the way that if we protested, we would want to be treated, right? We would want people who their their knee-jerk reaction is to disagree with us to consider what we were saying. We would want them to hear us out and not automatically try to label or tag what we were doing as something negative or tag it in a way that the people, the other people in our tribe or whatever are automatically going to dismiss us. 
And that's kind of what my, my problem with what I've seen out of Trudeau on this is the automatic, you know, they're they're completely against truth. They're they're the enemy. Right. Rather than you governing everybody and saying, OK, let's sit down and let's have a conversation about this and see where we can get when you dismiss or you kind of uh, demonize off top. You're not really dealing with the issue. That's not good for our public discourse. And we have to do it better. So you would want people to listen. You would want people to be considerate and you would want them not to label you or to. And you and the really just the expectation that this was going to get violent. The expectation that this was going to be somehow a gross kind of demonstration that that got out of hand, by all means, be prepared, be prepared for the word. But as you prepare, you can't automatically tag something by things, you know, that just haven't happened just because you anticipate them to happen. Uh, Chris, what any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I, I will say, uh, as you said, from the from the viewpoint of uh, Trudeau and those in the media, right, because I I think those are two different avenues of power that have sort of gotten this wrong. Right. Uh, There there is that sort of assumption. And almost if you watch the, the news coverage, almost like an anticipation of violence almost like sort of egging it on and, and, and wishing for it. And we we can't have that in the media. We can't have that from uh, leaders in government. There's certainly, like you said, a way to prepare for, for stuff if it happens without going out and making public, public statements, um, without, you know, sort of folks in the media being on the news highlighting the very most antagonistic uh, approaches. I mean, I, I, it, we talk about it all the time. I think one of the most important things uh, for us to do in this generation of people engaged in, in civics and political discourse is to figure out how to bring it down. And uh, you referenced the book one time, Justin, I'll, I'll send people to that one more time because we have a whole chapter in there just about discourse and civility. And People need to equip themselves because we feel passionately there are a lot of things going on in our world that hit us in the emotions. Um, But we need to train ourselves, disciple our own hearts to not participate in in unhelpful rhetoric and uh, to be able to point it out when we're seeing it on television and hearing it in different places. Right. Uh, that, that's really good because there were just a lot of assumptions that were made about what's going on. And this could all change tomorrow. It could come back and somebody's doing something that, but, but I think the organizers have been very clear on how they want this to be. And I think as we examine, as we analyze protests and causes that we disagree with, we got to make sure we do it honestly. We got to make sure we do it impartially and that what we're saying reflects reality, that it reflects the truth. We care about the truth, not just for ourselves, but for even for those we disagree with. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and Pastor Christopher Butler. We've spoken a few times, at least once or twice, about uh, the persecution of the Uyghur people in China. So we won't go in as far in depth as we have before, but the Uyghurs are a Muslim minority ethnic group in China. Uh, over a million of them have been forced into concentration camps to be re-educated for political and cultural indoctrination. This includes children. Imagine your children being taken from you so that they could be quote unquote re-educated for political and cultural indoctrination. That's 
That's crazy. Uh, the U.S. has described their treatment by the, the Chinese government as a form of genocide. A form of genocide, according to the Department of Labor, around 100,000 Uyghurs and other minorities are working in conditions of forced labor. And some of the products that are, are produced from this for, uh, forced labor actually end up in America. Um, now enters the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which uh, was uh, signed into law last December uh, and goes into effect, I believe, in June. Uh, and what it does is it requires uh, U.S. companies to guarantee that they did not use imprisoned or coerced workers from the region where the Uyghurs are. So it assumes that if you're getting products from a certain area, that they, that that uh, kind of labor was used and you have the burden of proving that it wasn't used or guaranteeing that it wasn't used. Now, some companies are already complaining that it'll be very hard to comply with this. Uh, complex supply chains for goods like fabrics, food or minerals. Uh, it says run and this comes from Bloomberg, uh, run multiple layers deep and companies may r run into roadblocks in their due diligence efforts. Uh, some analysts are saying. Uh, in addition to creating a huge compliance lift for these companies, such as Apple, who initially was uh, actually lobbying against this legislation, or at least to water it down. You should note that as I speak on my Apple computer. Uh, Nike uh, also, you know, this can this makes a, a huge lift for Nike. Uh, the law adds a layer also to environmental, social and governance concerns that corporate boards already face. Failure to comply, comply with the law will expose companies to more shareholder pressure over supply chain issues. So we see this measure taken uh, to prevent forced labor, to pre prevent American support of forced labor is causing some supply chain issues, is going to be a compliance issue for some of these companies. And it's the, just the cost of doing what's right. Uh, I don't know about you, Chris, I won't speak for you, but I think you know, what has been named in some of these articles and what some of these companies are complaining about is nothing compared to the idea of human rights violations um, that are happening to the Uyghur people in China. Now, I know that we get up in arms about many of the things that happen in the U.S. and we should do that. We should protest. We should stand up. I don't know of anything to this extent that's happening systemically in America right now. I could be wrong. And Chris, you can correct me. But this is just completely out of control. And that compliance, whether it's hard or not, is nothing compared to what the Uyghur people are going through. And we need more folks to step up and say, hey, if it's that hard, maybe we just don't do business there. Right. I mean, this is the cost of doing what's right. And if we thought it was going to be uh, without a cost, uh, we were just fooling ourselves. What are your thoughts on this, Chris? Yeah, I, I will say, you know, and I am i didn't get an opportunity to look at at as deeply into this particular article as uh, I wanted to just in terms of the work that went behind it and the writer and everything. But I'm always just a little bit skeptical uh, when something like this is couched in, in language that might trigger things for people that are, are not all the way true. 
Um, so these, you know, sort of supply chain uh, issues, when we talk about supply chain issues, and, I, and I'm sure there'll be supply chain things for these individual companies for their products, but we're sitting in the middle of a situation where we have inflation as high as it's been in about 40 years. And so you say, you know, protecting Uyghur people in China is going to exacerbate supply chain crisis may be more of an alarm than is necessary. Uh so I, I just point that out that we really, w- I would like to, and I will be looking further into this to see, is there something that people are projecting is going to be like through the whole economy and folks can't get like essential things that they need? Or is it like, you know, somebody like me that's in the market for a new MacBook is going to have to wait, um, you know, a little bit of time to see you know, my customized MacBook with my scripture engraved on it, you know. Well, let's explore that. How how big would the cost have to be that we would reverse something like this? So that was going to be my second point. So I, I think my second point uh, is that that cost will have to be extremely high for it not to be worth it for human rights. Um, we have to think about... Uh, especially for believers, right? Uh, priorities are going to include trade-offs, right? And so protecting Uyghur people in China may have some impact on our ability to get products and services that are being developed in China. Uh, I think we have to be prepared if we're going to advocate for human rights uh, on the global stage. Uh, we have to be prepared to make some of those trade-offs. And so I think that's very important. The, the last thing that I'll say on this point is that a part of this uh, sort of oppression and violence and advantage taking of Uyghur people in China is connected to something that I think has driven our sort of supply chain crisis and inflation issues in a much more significant way than standing up for human rights on a global stage, uh, which is the sort of outsourcing and offshoring of all production in the United States, which has harmed communities inside of the United States uh, in terrible ways as well. So I, I don't want to get into the, uh, I just want to point out, I guess, that the it, probably the best way to start to address long-term uh, our supply chain issues inside the United States is not to figure out you know, how much oppression we can tolerate around the world, but actually start thinking about how we can actually bring some production back to the United States so that those jobs are also returning. Yeah, that's right, because it's not to be tolerated. That's that's the answer that I think you gave and the answer that uh, I, I would give. This is not to be tolerated. And if there are supply chain issues or there are other issues with compliance, then maybe you need to go in another direction, but you can't put a number on how these people are getting treated and saying, okay, yeah, we know it's slave labor, but you know, it, 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 it makes us uh, more efficient if we do it, if we ignore it. And that's kind of what's been happening in, uh, too often. Now, let me say this, you know, I want to, I want to point something out, you know, in this day of day and age, um, we can become very self-righteous about social justice issues. Um, while at the same time, rocking Nikes, using our Apple computers and all that stuff, and knowing that there's a chance that somewhere along that supply chain that someone who didn't even want to do that job, someone whose kid is in some type of concentration camp, made that product. 
how do we deal with that? How do how do we uh, how do we address that? Where should we go? And I'm and this isn't something I'm just pointing at folks in the audience. I'm I'm looking at myself, right? Uh, how do we deal with that reality? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, y'all might have heard it. A minority owner of the Golden State Warriors, when he was asked about the NBA's relationship with China and the Uyghurs, he said, "No one cares about the Uyghurs. Nobody's concerned about that. It's not a big deal. Why are we worried about that?" Now, I'm surprised it didn't get more news because especially on a lot of our uh, sports channels, you got in a lot of in 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 a lot of our sports, folks are all in, at least from what's on the jerseys and at least from their commentary. They're all in on social justice and they go hard. They go hard on those issues. But I have noticed that they don't talk about this issue all that much. Some of our big and bold former players and Folks who be on social media talking about social justice for some reason when it comes to the NBA in China, you don't hear a whole lot about that. So maybe this should humble us a little bit as we approach other issues that we may care a little more about and how we approach those who may have some conflicts of interest on those issues or may have some reason that they're not as quick to speak about it. It's not to say don't do the right thing. It's is maybe to temper our self-righteousness in that area a little bit. Chris, I'll let you take us out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you put it right. I mean, first, these are uh, atrocities against the human race that none of us should tolerate. And it and it does present to us sort of this teachable moment. I, I also just think, you know, again, as you read news articles and media of any kind, to just be on the lookout for those false choices and false dichotomies, because you don't, and I'm, I'm not saying that this is what this uh, writer was trying to do, because I really haven't been able to look into this particular article and this particular reporter. Um, but very often, the way we talk about these issues, we'll try to set up for people a false choice. You know, either, you know, we're going to deal with inflation and the supply chain crisis in the United States, or, you know, we're going to stand up for uh, human rights and for the Uyghur people in China. And the reality is, you can do both. It's not an either or. You don't have to tolerate uh, human rights atrocities in order to live a prosperous life in the United States. That's good. And maybe the title of this episode should be Be Consistent. Try to get it right and be consistent. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the Ann Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement.
And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Like I just said, you know, a lot of what we're talking about, really, if you look at a common theme in the three topics that we're talking about today, a lot of it is about being consistent. And I just realized that I, even when we chose the the topics, I, I'm just really realizing now that it has a lot to do with being consistent. And here's another uh, topic where I think there's some inconsistency, where our, our values and our principles change based on what we can take advantage of. Now, the, uh, the New York Times has a strong article about dark money in politics, and it starts off by pointing this out. It says it says that Democrats have long complained with a mix of indignation, frustration and envy that Republicans and their allies were spending hundreds of millions of difficult to trace dollars to influence politics. Dark money became a dirty word as the left warned of the threat of corruption posed by corporations and billionaires that were spending unlimited sums through loosely regulated nonprofits which did not disclose their donors identities. And we can we've talked before about how this came about in court cases and all that, but there's a lot of dark money going on and there's no disclosure of where the money came from. Well, come to find out, dark money in part is how the Democrats ended up defeating Donald J. Trump, President Donald Trump. Uh, the top, and listen to this, the top 15 progressive or Democrat-associated nonprofits spent more than $1.5 billion in 2020 compared to roughly $9 million spent by a comparable, a comparable sample of 15 of the most politically active groups aligned with the GOP. $1.5 billion of dark money compared to $900 million of dark money. Both of those should be concerning to us. Again, this is an example of being against something when you think it'll hurt you and then being for something when you think it works in your favor. It's unprincipled, really on both sides. Uh, and it, it causes a conflict because many of us may say, well, I, I'm glad that Donald Trump lost. And we then we have to also look at the means because we know as Christians that the, 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 the ends don't justify the means. And this is and I'm not saying that this dark money is the only reason that it happened or anything like that. But we have to look into what's going on on both sides and make sure we have a fair examination. According to The New York Times. The findings uh, reveal that the growth and, uh, and ascendancy of shadow political infrastructure that is reshaping American politics as mega donors to these nonprofits take advantage of loose disclosure laws to make multi-million dollar outlays in total secrecy. So what I'm getting from that is, Chris, there's a whole infrastructure, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on behind the scenes in secrecy. That's going to have a major impact on our politics. And we don't know who's funding these things. We don't know who's running around. You know, one of the major parts of politics and making a democracy work is transparency. It's shining a light on what's going on to make sure that everybody knows how things are moving and why people are being influenced. Some good government activists worry that the exploding role of undisclosed cash threatens to accelerate the erosion of trust in the country's political system. I would say so. 
Chris, what are your thoughts about dark money with Republicans and with Democrats and really by playing by these rules, even when you feel like they're against your principles? Yeah, I mean, so I was uh, part of the early crowd of people more in Democratic spaces that were very critical of dark money, uh, you know, especially, you know, sort of post um, Citizens United that allowed, you know, dark money to be. Uh, incredibly rampant and impact elections in a lot of different ways, um, and I think it's 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 horrible uh, for folks to have a view of what we're talking about. There are political organizations that can be set up that don't have to disclose the origin of the monies that they amass, and these organizations are spending, as you heard, uh, hundreds of millions. Um, and now into the billions of dollars uh, in one year uh, in elections. That's an incredible, incredible amount of money to be spending in our elections. And I, I have been long an advocate of campaign finance reform. Uh, I'm involved in a campaign right now, and it is um, frankly ridiculous the amount of money that goes into most of these elections. All of that needs to be scaled back. But this dark money it's probably one of the worst sort of forms of bad campaign uh, finance sort of mechanisms. You know, you can, for instance, for for those who are listening, like you have a person give money to a five hundred one c three organization, so they get a tax write off for that organize for that donation. That five hundred one c three can give it to a five hundred one c four. That five hundred one c four. Uh, can give it to one of these dark money groups. Um, and what started out as a charitable tax deductible donation uh, can end up being used without any sourcing to impact you know elections. And that is bad. Uh, it was bad when we first started calling it bad. And it is worse, in my opinion, that people who started out calling it bad um, fell into the horrible uh wisdom uh is not wisdom it's you know sort of a popular truism that is not wise at all uh, if you can't beat them join them uh, yeah, and chris i want to real quick i'm gonna let you continue <laughs> but l- let's think about what chris just said let's say i'm a big donor i can give to a 501c3 get a tax write-off they can give it to a 501c4 then it can become dark money to fund some campaign and do a whole bunch of stuff you cannot tell me that the tax exemptions and all that was meant to turn to be turned into dark political money. That is ridiculous. Go no, ahead. It's crazy. It is. It, it's crazy. You need a community of people devoted to fighting against this. And yes, it's hard. Yes, it uh, it, it takes some effort. But it, it's horrible to see that now both major political parties are caught up in this. Um, you know, it, it really just speaks to the need of a movement of people along a lot of these different lines. Uh, but this campaign finance, to me, is one of the, the very important ones. And just campaigns and politics in general, right? Like how we do elections, how we do campaigns, uh, decide so much about who is in power and how decisions are made that impacts everybody's lives, uh, that we really need to find ways to rescue that. Uh, I, I guess I would haste to say that I do not uh, 
sort of find myself hopeless today. Um, there are mechanisms at the local level, at the state level, uh, and, and people who are organizing to, uh, you know, to change campaign finance laws, to institute, you know, sort of different kinds of public financing of campaigns, lots of different mechanisms that can be used. And there's always, you know, the, the, the training of, not just the individual mind, but actually doing organizing at the grassroots level to actually reject the sort of big money spending that's happening in our campaigns uh, in a lot of different ways. So, uh, you know, every great movement, whether it was slavery or civil rights or um, women's rights, like these issues were at some point uh, things that seemed completely intractable in society. Uh, and, People got together and pushed it back. Uh, so I, I think this is horrible. I think that it is uh, incredibly dangerous to our democracy. Uh, but I don't think that it's hopeless. It just requires us to to focus on it and begin to push it out of our, our politics and our elections. Yeah, it is certainly not hopeless, but it shows us why we need to be consistent. If you have a principle, make sure you maintain that principle. It's actually not a principle if it changes with the circumstances. So let's make sure that we are as uh, principled and as consistent with those principles as possible. That should be uh, something that improves the Christian public witness. Uh, we talked about last week and, and just want to remind everybody, if you really want to run for office, you live in Atlanta or Chicago, you really want to learn how to work on political campaigns. You just want to up your game in the political space. You need to think about applying for the uh, for the and campaigns uh, Christian Civic Leadership Academy, where we will be training folks to do all the above. We'll be talking about the X's and O's of campaigns, but also about ethics and how to be a distinctly Christian uh political operative or elected official in a real political arena, man. So if you're interested in that, you can go to our website uh, and you can apply for the CCLA. We're really ex excited to get that started and hope that some of you will join us who listen to this show. Uh, as always, we appreciate you guys. And ANCAMP, there is there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Till next time, man, Kemp. I'll let you. Somebody say kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I say kingdom.